you may ask. How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I'm Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with an M Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorahgmail.com, and of course, I will answer as many as I can. So I'm getting ready to, uh, to go into New York. I have my father's yard site. It's actually the third yard site, yard site, anniversary of death. And I'll visit the cemetery. And it's really a fascinating custom. Um, and I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but it's pretty old. And that is when a family has a celebration coming up, like a wedding. I have some weddings coming up. So you actually bring an invitation to the grave and you put an invitation down. Sounds a little strange. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of holy stuff to it. It does say that the 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 parents, grandparents, do do come to family um, simchas. A wedding would be a great example. Perhaps um, they're coming because this is to their benefit, right? New generations, new children. Children will do more good deeds, study more Torah, and that just goes into their bank account. I don't want to call it exactly a um, like multi-level marketing, right? But they're on top of the pyramid, so they're going to benefit from all those descendants that do good stuff. It's a beautiful thing. So, do they need the invitation to show up? I doubt it. Uh, but it is a very, very old custom, and I'm hoping that I should be able to do that. And I'll get together with family, talk about my father. Um, some of us will. Uh, Say special prayers, finish a tractate, we'll, we'll do some nice stuff. So let's get through the first part. We want to talk about some things in the Torah portion, and uh, then uh, maybe I'll connect it to what kind of person my father was. I think there's some good stories to learn from. It's funny, as time moves on, it's either you don't remember the stories so well, or you embellish the stories so far that, that uh, it's not the real original story, but I'll do my best. Okay. So in last week's Torah portion, so... The flood basically has ended. Noah's ark has landed on top of a mountain. There's still water everywhere. Noah wants to get a feeling of how much water has receded. So he sends out the raven. The raven doesn't want to go. He sends out the dove. The first time it comes back, Noah to rest. Second time it comes back, it brings an olive branch. And we can talk about that. And then the third time, the dove doesn't come back. So Noah now knows that the flood waters have receded. He doesn't really leave the ark till God says, okay, you guys are out of here. But until that point, Noah now knows what's going on. Right? He has a feeling for what's going on. So he saw something very interesting. Um, why an olive branch? First of all, we have a problem. Where to get the olive branch from? The world we said was destroyed. Some say he went to the Garden of Eden. Some say the land of Israel was flooded and the water destroyed everything, but the destructive waters didn't enter Israel. So the trees were submerged. Now the water goes down, the trees are alive again. So that means the bird, the dove, made it to Israel. How could the bird fly so far? 
Some say the dove is a fascinating bird. It, it can fly with one wing. So one wing is flapping, the other wing is resting. Then it switches, it switches, switches. Others say it just flew from mountaintop to mountaintop because the water is receding. So it just went over the mountains till it got to Israel. In either case, if I'm telling you that he went to the Garden of Eden and he got to Israel, so why did God send back an olive branch? <laughs> send back a pomegranate branch. Send back a, a palm tree branch. Like, why an olive tree? So a few different answers, but one of the new answers that I saw, not new, new for me, was that the olive tree is very fascinating. The olive tree is the only tree that if you keep it out of the ground for a year, it's dead. I'm not a big farming person. I don't know exactly how saplings work. You save seeds, you don't save seeds. But the olive tree cannot survive if it's out of dirt for a year. There's other things that can take seeds, leave them, uh, you know, in a bag, and when it's time to plant them, plant them, take care of them, no problem. The olive seed or branch will not survive out of dirt after a year. That's the rule. Don't ask me why. Um, this is what I heard. This is what I was told. You want to look it up on Google. I bet Google doesn't even know, unless Google knows this uh, this uh, Torah thought. And he might, or she. Um, anyways, so what's the point to that? So Noah knew he was going to be in the ark for a year, a full solar year. So he has to get the stuff in beforehand, right? You're not bringing the stuff in the last second, and you're not planting it the first second out. So there would be no way for an olive tree to survive and has the ability to replant. There was no way that you would be able to replant an olive tree after a year. So in Noah's mind, I got a problem. I got a problem. I'm supposed to have all kinds of seeds to replant the world, and we have two of each kind of animal to repopulate the world, but the olive tree is finished as far as what I can do. What God wants, God can do whatever he wants. So that first lesson, God sends back the olive branch. Noah, don't worry about it. Your job is to do what I tell you. God says, bring in the seeds. Certain seeds you can't bring with you, so you wonder what's going to happen. That's God's problem. It's God's problem how the world will be able to have olive trees after the flood. So the bird, the dove, comes back with a message. I can take care of you, Noah. Don't worry about it. I can take care of you. I can take care of the olive branch. Your job is to do what you can do. Your job is to do what God tells you to do. And it's not your job to figure out, well, if God destroys the whole world, and I can't bring in an olive branch, so how will there be olives? It's not your problem. It's God's problem. Your job is to do. God doesn't need your help. So whatever you humanly can't do, don't do it. It's God's problem. You do what you can do. The rest is up to God. So interesting, there was a story. Um, and we talked, we had a, in a similar vein. Uh, we had a nice long story in the last show. So I, that story I for sure can't repeat because that story took half the show. But a similar story when World War II was over. So you had a lot of rabbis in Israel. Israel was not attacked. right? Rambo didn't make it to Israel. And we've talked about stories about that. Um, so Israel was spared. They had a lot of rabbis in Israel, great rabbis, and they got together and said, you know, what's going to be all these people 
They weren't studying for all these years. They're probably not religious anymore. How are we going to rebuild Torah? What are we going to do? And they're trying, and ideas, and this, and a Panavizharov got up. Panavizharov is the one that established, um, in B'nai Brak, he established the, it's more than just a school. It's called Panaviz, but it's a, it's a far-reaching organization, boys, girls, girls' schools, um, um, orphanages that they needed in those days, post-high school, um, social service networks. It's like a whole conglomerate. So he said, it's not our job to try to figure out how we're supposed to fix it. We don't have to fix anything. We just have to teach. We have to set up the schools. How the world, the Torah world, will get rebuilt, that's God's problem. Right? In other words, we have to do what God wants us to do. Um, God doesn't need our help to fix things. So it's not our job to fix a problem that exists in the world. Again, obviously, it's something we can fix. We can fix it. Let's not take that wrong, right? Obviously, our goal is to make the world a better place, and we want to be good people and want to help people. Of course, we have to do that. But when we're looking at something, and and the answer is there's no way to fix it. It's too late. There's nothing we could do. The answer is not, so why bother? The answer is that we're looking at this situation uh, all the schools have been destroyed. All these rabbis have disappeared. There's no way there'll be Torah again in the world. So what should we do? Open up a school anyways. And everything else God will have to take care of. And if these rabbis could have seen what the world looks like now with the, with the amazing amount of children that are able to be in, in Jewish Orthodox day schools, it would amaze them. It would amaze them. Maybe some of them did see it. Maybe Panavizhrav did see it. A lot of them didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know. But it didn't matter because they did what God wanted them to do and then now God makes it work. So that concept of uh, God doesn't need our help to survive. We're just supposed to do what God wants. I, I found my father a blessed memory. That, I don't want to say it was his mantra, but he certainly did a lot of things that were in that line. For example, and I've talked about this before, my father was a volunteer fireman. Why? So in, in Muncie, that area of northern New Jersey and, and Rockland County, they don't have paid firemen. In, in my neighborhood, in Oak Park, I'm not sure exactly what Southfield, they call them public service officers. In other words, your police and your fireman and your ambulance, they're all the same people. So they can save money on having one person do three jobs. So they're all in one. So here it's actually paid for. It's not volunteer here as far as I know. But in Muncie it was volunteer. Now the problem was the Muncie area was very religious. But there were really one or two Jewish firemen. So my father said, how could it be? They're servicing our community. It's not nice. I'm going to go be a fireman, right? I have to do what's right. This is the right thing to do. What's going to be? What's going to be? We'll worry about what's going to be. He was a fireman for many, 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 many years. And actually, because he was involved in the Jewish community, so when they had difficulty, there were certain neighborhoods that were nervous to allow the fire department in. So what they did was they sent my father ahead of the truck, they had him take off his helmet. You know, all firemen have all that gear and helmets and the visors and the boots. So actually, he would take off his helmet 
took off his helmet, they saw he was wearing a yarmulke. So they knew he was Jewish. As soon as they saw that he was Jewish, they opened up the doors. They let them in. He explained to them. He worked with them. Right? In other words, people could say, oh, they're never going to let us in. Don't even bother. No, no. My father said, let's bother, and I'll take care of it. And that's what happened. Right? He hated bingo. He hated smoke. It's interesting. Um, I was born. My sister was born. Before my second sister was born, my father was a heavy smoker. Forget about it. There were no filters in those days. Heavy smoker. And my mother said to him, you got to stop smoking. So my father did. No patches, no nicotine gum. I used to always tell my father, I said, you can't tell people to stop smoking. No one relates to you. You didn't want to, you wanted to stop smoking, you stopped smoking. End of story. And you didn't restart. Now it got to the point where he hated the smell. He's a fireman, sounds pretty funny. But he hated cigarette smoke. But um, when I was going to school, so the schools demanded, nowadays schools don't demand anything, I don't know why, but... In those days, if you wanted a tuition break, you had to help the school raise money. So one of the ways that schools on the East Coast would raise money is they would have bingo. Now, again, I don't know if you've ever gone to play bingo. I went once because I wanted to tag along. You have rows of tables, and the people buy their bingo strips, and they're all smoking. The whole room is one big chimney. And my father hated it. He came home, he smelled of smoke, he was coughing, he hated going in. So why did he do it? And, and don't and you can't say, why did he do it? Just don't do it. Because a lot of people who were supposed to be doing stuff to raise money said, I can't handle the smoke, it's not a good time for me, it's not convenient, I'm not going to help you, I can't help you. A lot of people did it. So if a lot of people did it, so why couldn't he also just say I'm not doing it? Because he knew that that's what he was supposed to do. God wants me to do it. I can't handle smoke. So what? This is what I have to do. It's going to be impossible. It won't be impossible. God will figure out a way to make it possible for me. And for many years, he was involved in the bingo. So funny, these bingos, when I think about it. Like, there would be one person calling out the numbers, and after a few numbers, people would get nervous. Oh, he's not calling good numbers. He's not calling good numbers. So that person would step down. My father would go up. Then after a while, they got tired of him. The next one goes up. It was like a very funny, you know, they walk around selling candy. It was a, I mean, I'm sure it was a pretty decent fundraiser. Um, we wanted to start it here. We, it, it didn't work. It just, it didn't work. We weren't going to get the parent body involved because that's, it's a certain attitude that you don't find too often. You find it sometimes with that attitude that I have to do what I have to do, even if it doesn't make sense, is irrelevant. Um, uh, another story along this uh, set of lines. So I was sent ahead, as they say. We lived in upstate New York. There were really no day schools there. My mother used to drive us an hour back and forth a couple times a week, afternoon day school. Um, but they wanted me in a regular Orthodox day school. But the family wasn't ready to go. He, he, he wanted to sell his store. He had a pharmacy, been around for a long time, very successful, wanted to sell it. So they sent me to an aunt and uncle, basically about a five or six hour drive away. I think I took a plane a couple of times. Those were the days we had to walk up steps outside the plane to get on. Missed flights. They drove me. Then the next year, my mother and sisters came down, and finally he had enough. He wasn't able to sell the store. There was a right opening across the street. He just locked it up and left because he knew what he had to do. 
he wanted to make money. It didn't make sense to leave and not make money on a store that had been around for so long and had so many loyal customers. That's what he wanted. But he saw that's not what God wanted. So therefore, he picked up, locked the store, and came down to join us. But even the concept that he sent me away is is fascinating. Can you imagine sending a third grader, even if it's to a relative? We don't... We are not those wealthy people that send their children off to boarding school. That's in England they do boarding school. We, we don't do boarding school. Who does boarding school? Right? The, he, he did what had to be done because that's what God wanted. Right? It's a very interesting thought. Now, it happens to be, maybe that's a, a even better connection, because my wife's family, her grandfather, the same thing happened. He was living in, uh, I always say Portland, Maine. Maybe it was Bangor, Maine, Portland, Maine, one of those cities. It was a Jewish city, but no school. Nothing, or even if there was an elementary school, there was nothing major there. So her great-grandfather sent his two boys, this is in the 20s. He sent them to Israel. And he knew he might never see them again, but he wanted his boys to have a a Jewish education, to grow up as religious Jews. He knew it wasn't going to happen in Bangor, Maine, or again, or Portland, Maine, whichever one it was. Right? These are all people that they know what God wants. God wants us to make sure we educate our children in a, in a, in a, in a good Orthodox day school, if you're Jewish. So, I, it doesn't make sense how you're going to do it. How's the kid going to survive? You send them away. That's God's problem. I need to do what has to be done. How it's going to work, how it's going to happen, it looks impossible. The impossible part is up to God. We have to do what we can do. And that's really Abraham in this week's Torah portion. Abraham gets these crazy tests. But he doesn't complain. God says, go. I'm not even telling you where to go. Just go. Abraham knew it was Israel, but uh, God didn't tell him. He gets to Israel because God told him to go, right? Because God said so. doesn't make sense. Where am I going to live? What's going to be? You know, uh, I had my livelihood here. Now you're sending me away. Go. Gets to Israel. All of a sudden, there's a famine. Hey God, what are you thinking? You, you, you sent me, you sent me to this land, and now there's a famine. No, no questions. I, it's impossible to be here. It's impossible to be here. So I, I have to do what I have to do. But it's, it's God's problem on the impossible. So Abraham says, I gotta go down to Egypt. Now this is debatable. If he should have gone down to Egypt or not, it's considered a test. He goes down to Egypt, but he has a problem. His wife is gorgeous. And the Egyptians are going to either kill him and take his wife, or he doesn't know what it's going to be. So he tells his wife to say, you're my sister. Right? And, I was, and they did kidnap her. They did take her to Pharaoh's palace, and God has to do miracles to protect her from the Pharaoh. And eventually the Pharaoh gives them a lot of uh, wealth and sends them on their way because uh, he, cause God is doing miracles to beat him up. Right? So that's really the, the same concept. It's impossible. There's no way I can survive going to Egypt, Abraham says. But he doesn't say it. God told him to do it. He does what he's supposed to do. And here comes the music. And I hope you enjoyed it, short and sweet. Thank you, of course, to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. You know, I can't do it without you. Thank you on the production team. We have David and Andy in the back. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. <laughs>